This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. War makes for strange bedfellows, and it appears that many in Hollywood don't know which bed they belong in. The headline from the Los Angeles Times, how the Israel-Hamas war is dividing Hollywood. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So right now, is it liberal or is it conservative to support a two-state solution in the Palestinian-Israel puzzle? That, to me, is one of the most interesting questions in the debates we're seeing, both in politics and academia. And this is one of the things that's kind of looming over this dispute that's covered in the Los Angeles Times story about divisions inside Hollywood. I tweeted out that question not that long after the Hamas blitz of southern Israel, And I was sincerely interested in in an answer, and hardly anybody responded. And those that did said it's really hard to know. Because if you stop and think about it, for our listeners, let me walk through kind of the logic of asking the question. Normally, seeking a two-state solution to the Palestinian problem or issue or whatever noun you want to use has been kind of a cause favored by liberals within the state of Israel and liberals kind of looking at the Middle East, I mean, wanting to find justice for the Palestinians and to give them a homeland. This has traditionally been a liberal solution to the situation, liberal in the old sense of the word. I mean, and our listeners have heard me struggle now for years now with what does liberal mean today? What does conservative mean today? And I'm I'm asking the question because of one very key element of the Hamas attack, and that is the people who believe the attack was deliberately timed to shut down talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia toward reaching some sort of treaty of mutual agreement of peace, or at least striving toward peace. And at the heart of that is a recognition of Israel having a right to exist. Now, it means that these countries don't have to agree on everything. They may even disagree on how to seek a two-state solution. And there might be conservative people within Israel, conservative politicals, that still don't believe a two-state solution is realistic. I mean, that's a big, bitter division within Israeli politics. But what does that have to do with the Hamas attack? If the goal of the Hamas attack was to disturb the potential for some increased cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel, or some agreement by the Saudi Arabian monarchical government to say that Israel is someone you deal with and you make treaties with, and that that nation 
implied has a right to exist, then what do you do with the slogan that we're now hearing chanted all across America and around the world from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. I was first exposed to that phrase when I was in the Middle East in 2000, when I went there for a conference on religion in the news and to be there when the late St. Pope John Paul II arrived on a pilgrimage into the Middle East to visit Christians, Israel, et cetera, et cetera. He landed in Jordan. And I didn't know what that phrase meant until I saw a poster hanging in an office of a Muslim organization that said, had the slogan on it in English as well as Arabic. And it clearly showed that the meaning of that phrase is the removal of the state of Israel. From the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. In other words, no Israel. Get rid of Israel. Now, when you say get rid of Israel, you can be defining that in several different ways. I mean, at the very least, you're hearing people saying that this phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, is a call for genocide, an absolute genocide against the Jewish people in Israel. At the very least, you're talking about destroying the world's only Jewish state, a state identified explicitly with Judaism in, in every possible way, and the return of the Jews in that land to some sort of secondary demi-status within an Islamic state. Now, I know there are a lot of different variations on that, and some people would disagree that that's what it means, but that's why groups like the Anti-Defamation League and others identify that as an explicitly anti-Semitic statement from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. So when we see elementary school students in America or high schools and colleges and people marching around chanting this, at some point you have to ask, what does that mean? And in Hollywood, clearly the fault lines between those who want to support the Palestinian cause in some degree or another, or completely, this is a very bitter issue, and a, especially when you consider the history of debates about the roles of Jews in Hollywood. So I thought it was a very interesting article. I'm not surprised this happened, and I'm not surprised that screenwriters are at the center of this dispute. So let's talk about the LA Times story. What was notable in there? Well, I mean, once again, like I just said, that the screenwriters are at the heart of this. Now, when you stop and think about, okay, who are screenwriters in Hollywood? And of course, we've just come through the strike that has put a lot of attention on screenwriters. But I think it's safe to say that screenwriters are, <laughs> they're kind of one of the labor classes of Hollywood. And as writers and creators, I would say, my experience at least, the screenwriters are the people who most resemble academics and creative artists of the word, intellect, ideas, arguments, etc. within Hollywood. I mean, obviously that would also apply 
to many directors and producers and others. But when you're talking about screenwriters, you're talking about people who I would say are at kind of the idealistic edge of Hollywood when it comes to ideas and symbolism and debates. And suffice it to say, these are not the people who are making decisions that affect millions and millions of dollars in the creation of popular culture and entertainment. So the fact that screenwriters are debating each other and that the screenwriters decided as a group that their guild did not release a statement condemning the Hamas slaughter of men, women, and children in southern Israel, you could see how that would be a highly symbolic thing for people in Hollywood. So how would you improve the story if you could? Well, one of the big questions here is whether in the degree to which people were or were not accusing the Writers Guild of America of anti-Semitism by refusing to release the statement. When you bring up the word anti-Semitism, we get into some interesting aspects of the history of Hollywood and the life of Hollywood. Julia Dean wrote a post earlier this week for Get Religion that had a link to a page at the American Jewish Committee offering a working definition of anti-Semitism. And one of the very first things listed for, right after examples of anti-Semitism include calling for abating or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. That's number one. But number two, making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations about Jews as such, or the power of Jews as a collective, such as, expressively but not exclusively, the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy, or Jews controlling the media, economy, government, or other societal institutions. And when you say controlling the media, what are you talking about? Largely, for decades, you've talked about people claiming that Jews control Hollywood. And so the minute you talk about Jews and Hollywood or anti-Semitism in Hollywood, you get into discussions. And I want to make it very clear to our listeners, saying that Jews control Hollywood is not the same thing that all kinds of sociologists and researchers, including Jews, have written books about the unusually prominent role that Jews have played in the business and creativity of Hollywood. Statistical numbers and percentages and power is not the same thing as saying Jews control Hollywood. We also, in this case, for one specific element of the story, we get into discussions of whether in Hollywood, and I think this would be true in government and business and oh, academia, but especially in Hollywood, when you say that someone is Jewish, is this a matter of religion or purely a reference to culture and ethnicity? And now we're seeing the exact same questions raised about Islam. When you say that there is a Muslim in Hollywood, are you saying that they are a practicer of the Muslim faith? Are you saying that this is their heritage or their ethnicity? 
I've talked to Jewish leaders in Hollywood that stress over and over, identifying someone as Jewish in Hollywood may say little or nothing about their faith status, and that the role of secular Judaism in Hollywood is in a way, much as it is in business or politics, academia or anything, that's a subject that needs to be discussed. Are we talking about religion in this case? Or are we simply talking about culture, ethnicity, race, and family heritage? So the minute you talk about a dispute like this within Hollywood, all kinds of specters are called up related to Hollywood is a place where you can't be religious, or Hollywood is a place where only certain people get to be religious, or Hollywood is in a place this that anti-Semitic trope. Hollywood is a place that is run by the Jews, and no one would dare dispute with them. So that's the kind of subject that looms over this Los Angeles Times story. And it's why this dispute about the action of the Writers Guild is so potent and powerful. Terry, what other religion angles do you think could afford to be explored by a story like the Los Angeles Times piece? Well, I think it's a perfect example of why the conflict in Gaza is so tricky to discuss. I mean, I kept waiting, for example, when reading the Los Angeles Times story, I kept waiting for like some sort of discussion of the degree to which people were or were not beginning to use the term anti-Semitism in this discussion. But Frankly, as we've seen from the get-go, it's very hard to cover the story in a way that fairly handles the concerns, the valid concerns of Palestinians, and at the same time deal with the horrors of what Hamas did. And, and I think right up front, we need some element in these stories that explores the degree to which Hamas is not the Palestinian people, and the degree that many Palestinians see Hamas as their enemy, or see Hamas as an enemy of their long-range goals, such as preventing the possibility of a two-state solution. If Hamas attacked Israel because of the Saudi Arabia talks, in effect, Hamas is acting to prevent a two-state solution. And many, many Palestinians would favor, obviously, a two-state solution that gives them land and rights and a government and other things that settles their relationship with Israel in many ways. So that's just one factor. I, of course, as someone who is Eastern Orthodox and spent quite a bit of time in a majority Palestinian, Syrian, Lebanese parish, when I lived in West Palm Beach, I've extensively heard about the plight of Christians, both in Gaza and in the West Bank and in the entire region, and the complex, painful realities affecting Christians in this region, where they're being almost wiped out by ISIS in certain parts of Syria and other parts of the Middle East in general. We had a, a bomb the other day that hit one of the most historic and important Eastern Orthodox churches in Gaza. And dozens or hundreds of people were killed. Once again, it was 
stated that this was Israeli shelling. At the same time, you get into problems that there are institutions that I think journalists need to pursue this. What major institutions in Gaza have been forced to either house branches of Hamas and its government? I mean, hospitals that are linked to the Hamas medical agencies or mosques or institutions that house Hamas political offices and stuff like that. There have been allegations, I stress the word allegations, of large storehouses of armaments and shells and bombs being placed, in effect, using Palestinian institutions, both Muslim and Christian, etc., as large forms of human shields to make it difficult for Israel to get in and try to clear out Gaza, capture the hostages if possible. But also think about this. Put yourself in the position of being a Christian Palestinian, knowing that you're, for generations your life has been shaped both by the victories of Israel and by the attacks of Islamic forces on Israel. And when you deal with the fact that many of the holy sites Bethlehem leaps to mind. Many of the holy sites that are most dear to Christians in the Middle East, Palestinian Christians, Arab Christians, Orthodox Christians, Catholics, many of them are very close to Jerusalem and very close to the state of Israel. And thus, when Muslim nations or Muslim forces attacked Israel and Israel won, Christians often lost everything in their lives. They were in a position to most be affected by the loss of businesses and homes and lands, etc. So the situation with this LA Times story and trying to figure out how do you support the Palestinians, which is one issue, as to how do you take positions and make statements that in effect support Hamas. I mean, there are allegations by Palestinians, Americans, Jewish, etc., that anytime large amounts of financial aid are sent to Gaza, it ends up in the hands of Hamas, or it ends up being administrated in a way that helps Hamas. So can you picture this being debated in, in Hollywood right now? How do you make a statement that says, I oppose Israel attempting to completely recapture Gaza or go in there with tanks and the thousands who would die, I'm worried about that, separating that position and separating support for a, a two-state solution, separating that from support for Hamas and support for what Hamas did in southern Israel in that slaughter. And one other thing that I want to mention all of this shows how hard it is in cancel culture and in our current divided America. The fact that the First Amendment, old-fashioned First Amendment liberalism, where everybody gets to speak their mind, and that's the sort of thing that you should see defended in Hollywood and defended in mass media. Well, okay, does that mean that someone, this case is mentioned it, LA Times article, a very powerful agent like Maha Dakhil Jackson 
who is someone that, once again, what is her religious status? Her parents, she was raised in Sunni Islam. To what degree is she a Muslim, a practicing Muslim, someone who's Muslim by heritage? To what is this a matter of ethnicity? Well, but does she have free speech? She apparently made social media appeals or retweeted things that seemed to suggest that she was opposing Israel's attempt to regain hostages or blockade Gaza in some form or fashion. And there was a backlash against this. At the same time, you have other people in Hollywood making very powerful statements. You should not be surprised that someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, someone who has been very public about the Nazism in his own family past, has made statements. You should not be surprised that Sergeant Gal Wonder Woman Gadot has been one of the people in Hollywood, I mean, someone who has served in the Israeli military and defense forces, that she would be very offended by the Writers Guild refusing or declining to release a statement on the slaughter in southern Israel. But do these people still have First Amendment rights? To what degree is someone canceled for First Amendment rights? To what degree is the First Amendment no longer practical in a community that is as divided on so many of these issues as Hollywood, or a community that has so much to lose financially as Hollywood? So anyway, this was a good article. It was definitely worth reading. But I would say it raised just as many questions as it answered. With about a minute here, Terry, Hollywood is kind of notorious for just jumping on the bandwagon of the latest thing. Yes. And is it possible to discern a little bit of hesitancy not knowing which bandwagon to jump on in this particular case? It's usually pretty obvious for Hollywood. Yes, and Hollywood has been politically correct in every sense of the word on issue after issue after issue. So at the heart of this writer's guilt situation is, okay, why didn't they make a statement? They make a statement after every riot. They make a statement after any kind of conflict. They make a statement on anything that hints at gun control. They make a statement on many, many issues that divide Americans. Why silence? And you can picture them sitting there going, okay, our membership, our community is divided on the Palestinian question. Really, here's the big issue. Is the Hollywood community divided ultimately on the right of Israel to exist, to defend itself, and to continue? And how has that issue become entangled in issues about how do you support Palestinians and what does supporting them mean in practical terms, like support of a two-state solution? Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.